Good morning. Welcome to the Expo Hour on the Money Buzz. Uh, we're here with you every last Wednesday of the month. And this just so happened to be the Wednesday before Christmas, and uh, before New Year's. <laughs> and I was just uh, uh, excited to have my guest uh, who will be joining me in a few minutes, uh, Jerry Hancock, uh, who is a former administrative of the Division of Law Enforcement Services, including the head of the State Crime Lab with DNA, when they went to DNA, and head of the Consumer Protection. Uh, Jerry's been a while for a while, and I am excited to have him. Currently, he is the director of uh, Prison Ministry Project, uh, where we're uh, doing restorative justice circles in the, in the prison. And also, he's a member of the Governor's Pardon Advisory Board. I tell you, uh, Reverend Hancock has been one busy, busy man. I am so pleased to have him with us this morning. And uh, Jerry, uh, I want to introduce you. Can we get a good shout out from you? <laughs> good morning, Jerome. And listen, it's uh, good you have a minister on this morning. Somebody who knows the difference between Christmas and New Year's. <laughs> well, I, you know, had the time off, man, and I'm losing track of the days, uh, Jerry, just kind of floating around here. I need to get back to work. <laughs> well, Happy New Year to you, Jerry. Um, wow, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, you know, the pardon board, that's something that uh, uh, was kind of foreign to us. Uh, you know, for many years, there were, I don't think we had a pardon board, less known individuals being pardoned. So uh, what's your role in that? Tell me, tell me a little bit about this pardon board. Well, Jerome, your, your memory is exactly right. Uh, uh, Governor Walker, uh, from the very first day in office, uh, said that he would not grant a pardon. He did not believe in pardons. He believed that the criminal justice system was uh, flawless and that whatever the criminal justice system had decided uh, was the end of the case, that he was not going to grant a pardon, not even consider granting a pardon, and he abolished the Pardon Advisory Board, which uh, almost every governor up to that time had relied on to advise governors uh, about who was appropriate to be pardoned. And the Pardon Authority uh, is pretty unique because it uh, resides completely with the governor. The governor can pardon anybody uh, he or she sees fit to pardon uh, for any reason. So it's, it's a, a, an awesome power. And most governors have established uh, an advisory board to make recommendations about uh, people who are deserving of getting a pardon. And Walker uh, refused to do that. I mean, he just as, uh, if you want to call it that, a matter of principle, uh, did not believe in pardons. 
Governor Evers, however, uh, deeply believes in pardons as a way of correcting or uh, rehabilitating people uh, after they have completed their sentences as a way of adding some level of forgiveness to the criminal justice system. So Governor Evers established the, uh, reestablished the Pardon Advisory Board. Uh, there are eight members, uh, of which I am one, and we meet on the second Friday of every month and consider applications for pardons. And we, uh, people are allowed to come and, and present their case, and there, there's about a, 60-page packet of information that we get that includes uh, their criminal record and everything they've done uh, since they've completed their sentence. And we review that, we talk to the applicants, and then we we vote. And if there is a majority in favor, uh, the application goes to the governor. And so far, in uh, three years, the governor has granted 337 pardons, which is uh, probably more than uh, Governor Doyle granted in eight years as governor. So uh, Governor Evers is a big believer uh, in in the pardon process and uh look forward to receiving uh, applications that have been approved by the pardon board. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Those numbers, I didn't know we were around 337 pardons. That is, that's, that's phenomenal. Going from zero to 330, right. 337 is, is really, really uh, astounding to me. And I know you guys are going to continue working through 2022. Uh, but wow, the stance that Governor Walker, to our previous administration, took. Have you known any other states to take a stance like, you know, we're not going to pardon anyone? I, yeah. you know, I, uh huh. Yeah, it's not, it, it, uh, it's not unheard of for other governors uh, to have taken that uh, that same stance. I mean, there, there are basically, I think, a couple of reasons why a governor would not, would take that position of not granting a pardon. Uh, one is like Walker, who believed, had ultimate faith in the criminal justice system. And then the second reason is that uh, governors don't want to use that power because they're afraid of uh, backlash, that they're afraid to pardon uh, a, a convicted criminal. And they're also afraid that it's a system that can be uh, manipulated. There have been cases of governors who have taken bribes to grant pardons. 
there are governors who have been accused of granting pardons to uh, political allies. Uh, and we've seen this. Uh, it's more uh, public when it's a presidential pardon. Uh, and you can remember uh, controversies around pardons of, of lots of presidents uh, going back you know, to Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon and some of the Clinton Clinton pardons that were thought to be uh, politically motivated and then, uh, uh, the pardons by President Trump that were thought to be politically motivated. So sometimes governors just want to avoid uh, those kinds of issues. So they just say, I, I'm... I know I've got this power, but I, I've decided I'm not going to use it. But in Walker's case, it was very much his belief in the, the criminal justice system. And uh, you and I both know that that, that belief is uh, unfounded. And that he, you know, he was, when he was in the legislature back in the late 1990s, he was the primary author of uh, truth and sentencing. So the fact that he would not consider consider pardons uh, in some ways was perfectly consistent of his view of uh, criminal justice. Yeah, yeah. This is a pretty large in that Alec group, too. <laughs> Alec. Um, yeah, right. He's one of the drivers right. of that. But Jerry... <laughs> Uh, you at one time were the deputy DA of Dane County. Uh, you worked with law enforcement. <laughs> you huh? worked at. Okay. Oh boy, I got a bad signal here. Can you hear me? Sure. Okay. Um, you've worked with law enforcement per se uh, for many years. What? What? When was that? When did you have that paradigm shift? What was it that said, "Hey, I'm going to start the prison ministry project and do some good stuff now"? <laughs> well, let, let me uh, let me back that up a little bit, and then I will answer your question. Okay. Uh, I I uh, I spent 35 years as. Uh, as a lawyer, uh, all, all of it doing criminal justice work of one kind or another. I, uh, the first time I was in the Dane County Jail interviewing prisoners was uh, more than 50 years ago. Whoa. And I spent time, yeah, I, I know, it's you're surprised that I'm that old. Uh, yes. But I, uh, I spent time as a public defender. I, I was deputy DA in Dane County when Jim Doyle was the DA. Uh, and I worked in the Department of Justice uh, with law enforcement training and with the crime lab. Uh, and it was a really good uh, career. And I felt like I was, uh, you know, I, that I was doing good uh, as a lawyer, uh, even as a prosecutor. 
Uh, I think uh, Jim Doyle, when he was DA in Madison, uh, really believed that uh, under understood the power of the district attorney and made a lot of uh, of really good policy decisions that uh, that led to to more justice being done uh, in the courthouse. So I I really felt and continue to be proud of the work uh, I did as as a lawyer and as working with law enforcement. But there came a moment, and I remember exactly uh, when that moment was, uh, that I realized that I uh, didn't want to be part of that system in that way anymore. And I went to a a lecture uh, on campus when a woman, a sociologist named Pam Oliver, was speaking. And she said, and this was like 1999 maybe, uh, so, you know, more than 20 years ago. She said that by some measures, a young black man in Dane County was 208 times more likely to go to prison for a drug offense than a young white man. Wow. A young black man was 208 times more likely to go to prison for a drug offense than a young white man. And that was my paradigm shift, Jerome, because wow. I uh, I realized that I had been uh, part of that system for uh, more than 30 years. And I knew the people, I had known every DA in Dane County, every sheriff, every chief of police, every judge in Dane County for 30 years. And I knew that they were not racist. They did not hate black people. And I was stunned to think that how could good, smart, well-meaning people, people like me, could produce a result that was that fundamentally racist. And that's when I decided that I really didn't want to be part of that system uh, anymore. And that I wanted to use my experience and my training in a different way to try and change that system. So I decided to become an ordained minister. It took me about uh, five years to do that. Uh, And in 2006, uh, First Congregational Church, United Church of Christ, here in Madison, uh, started the prison ministry project. And that has allowed me 
to speak to these issues of mass incarceration, uh, racial injustice, disparity of sentencing, from a different perspective, using a different kind of authority with a different vocabulary. And what it means is that I am no longer Attorney Jerry Hancock or Deputy District Attorney Jerry Hancock. I am Reverend Jerry Hancock, and I speak with the authority uh, of the church. Well, I am so glad you are Reverend Jerry Hancock today. I've, <laughs> yeah, I know I've, Christmas and New Year's, right? <laughs> yeah, I've witnessed the work. I've been a part of the restorative justice circles. I believe, uh, uh, and I'm just going to make this statement, I believe you've been in more prisons than I have and have spent <laughs> just as much time as I have inside the walls. Well, in a, in a very different way, Troy. <laughs> you know, when I go to prison, uh, I always get to come home at night. <laughs> okay. Well, then there's a difference there. <laughs> but uh, just witnessing the work that uh, that the Prison Ministry Project is doing inside Wisconsin prisons uh, within the restorative justice circles, uh, I, I know how powerful that has been and the many, many, many lives that have been changed by uh, uh, participating within that, that circle and that uh, the system of restorative justice. Uh, we know for a fact that it works. Um, I wanna, you know, I'm reflecting on something you said here, Jerry, and that is the DA can make policy decisions. Uh, that is something new for, uh, uh, for me and well <laughs> maybe we need to because since 2006 when you started this uh when you started this uh prison ministry project well when you joined the prison ministry project with first congregational have much changed since then jerry i mean we just had a report that came out by the sentencing project that says something different <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, Jerome, let's, uh, let's uh, kind of work backwards uh, from that question. Uh, have things changed? Uh, let me give you a, a lawyer's answer to that, and that is uh, yes and no. Uh, there have been uh, pockets of incremental change. Uh, The DA here in Madison, uh, Ishmael Zahm, has uh, been instrumental in creating the uh, community justice courts. And the the DA in Milwaukee, John Chisholm, has been very active in uh, using restorative justice in the community. So there have been uh, pockets of of progress. But if you look at the broader picture, nothing has really changed. There was a report done uh, in 2011, and 
in that report, it was uh, statistics from the Department of Corrections. Uh, if you put them all together, you get a picture of the prison population in Wisconsin in 2011. And in 2011, the majority of people in Wisconsin prison were black, brown, and red. In 2021, there was a report by the Sentencing Project that looked at Wisconsin prisons and the makeup of Wisconsin prisons is virtually the same. The majority of people in Wisconsin prison are black, brown, and red. So by that measure, uh, there has been essentially no change. And that's uh, really discouraging because a lot of people uh, have been working uh, to change that system. There have been a lot of reports a lot of books. I mean, uh, I know you are a big fan of Michelle Alexander and her book, The New Jim Crow, which came out about eight years ago, which completely explained why things are the way they are. And there have been detailed reports about uh, the Wisconsin Department of Corrections. And in spite of all that, and in spite of the work by groups like the Prison Ministry Project, uh, Moses here in Madison, uh, Wisdom Statewide, uh, your group, Expo, uh, that, I mean, what is so frustrating to me, Jerome, is that nothing has changed in the in the big picture. Nothing has changed in ten years, in spite of the fact that people know now exactly what's going on and why it's going on. So. You know, you can't, there's no longer a valid argument that, oh, we didn't know this was happening. Yes. So if people know this is happening and it still doesn't change, it, you Oof. kind of start to think that this is the way people want it to be. That as a state, Wisconsin is perfectly comfortable with this system that is working exactly the way they want it to work. And that's, that's so, really discouraging. Yeah, it's a black eye. Um, 
for it's a black guy for this state that when I came here was just so welcoming and and, and uh, um, liberal. Uh, but and, and you know that leads into uh, I asked Peggy Westroder to join us uh, this morning because bringing attention and bringing awareness to some of the issues around uh, felony disenfranchisement, racial disparities within the system, uh, uh, how individuals are treated uh, uh, once they return to the community since, uh, like you said, Governor Walker was one of the authors of Truth and Sentencing, uh, meaning that, uh, and I want to just kind of break this down. Peggy, I want to thank you for joining uh, myself and Jerry this morning. Uh, it's been an enlightening conversation, uh, but I want to break down truth and sentencing because it get, uh, uh, what it did was, it was designed to get rid of the, well, to get out of having the parole system, meaning that you do the time that you're sentenced, but on the other side of that, there's a second sentence, and that is the extended supervision portion of a sentence. And uh, what we've noticed and what we're uh, bringing to the community, informing them that individuals are doing long, long periods of extended supervision in our communities. And I, I do want to open the door here for Peggy to come in uh, to talk about um, I locked up on the outside or uh, 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 unlocked the vote, uh, et cetera, because we, that's, that's what we're here for, to inform the public and to educate the public. Expose motto is, we, you have a right not to remain silent. What we're saying is talk about it, tell your stories, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, let's, let's just share our truth because we have to speak truth to fact. Uh, Peggy, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for good joining morning, us. Good morning, Peggy. <laughs> good morning, Jerry. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I, I use that segment, uh, uh, as that statement as a segment into uh, what Expo is doing, uh, what we're looking for in 2022, and Jerry, I want you to stay with me. I got a couple of more questions for you <laughs> uh, with all that wisdom you have. But uh, let's, let's just touch on some of the projects uh, that we're really looking to hopefully get some movement in our state on. And uh, I think Unlock the Vote is a very, very important one based on some of the things I just stated. So Peggy, uh, we got uh, a pretty big day coming up in January. Let's talk about Madison Action Day, mm -hmm. what's the purpose, and et cetera, okay? Sure. So we have Unlocked About Action Day, January 12th. It'll be in the Capitol. Um, and Expo is once again going to be talking to legislators about removing felony disenfranchisement uh, from Wisconsin. Um, and then this couples really nicely with the conversation that you guys were having um, about disparities in the criminal justice system. And one disparity that we at Expo that couples with the Unlock the Vote campaign is sentencing reform. 
and sentencing disparities and how you could have a brown, black, or indigenous person who's charged with the same crime as a Caucasian person and you get two completely different um, sentences. And so we'll be looking at doing some sentencing that brings Wisconsin more in line with the rest of the nation. Um, right now we're about three times the national average in regards to supervision sentences. And so what that means is that our people sit and are, are disengaged from voting for the entire time right now that they're on paper in the state of Wisconsin. And we have exorbitantly long, um, you know, sentences for supervision. And so uh, in other states, they've put caps on the amount of time that people can do on supervision, which, again, helps to get people engaged in their community faster, helps them to bring them to full citizenship because they're able then to vote. Um, and we just feel like in the state with the third highest revocation rate in the nation that, um, you know, not keeping people on probation and parole for an exorbitantly long amount of time is really the way to go. It also saves taxpayer dollars. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Um, yeah. And 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 would you say uh, prison gerrymandering and and uh, uh, how that's mm -hmm. you know the meaning of prison gerrymandering? Yeah. Let's start there because a lot of people aren't aware of. Uh, right. Mm -hmm. So, can so you just touch on that, and I'm gonna come back to you, Jerry. Yeah, a big piece of the unlock to vote legislation is the prison gerrymandering. What we would like is we would like for the state of Wisconsin to say that people are will be counted um, in the areas that they're from and not where they currently reside. So the you know the effect of prison gerrymandering in the state of Wisconsin has literally been um, devastating to communities of color. We've annihilated um, representation of color because we've taken 17,000 people out of, this, out of the city of Milwaukee, out of Milwaukee County, and put them all over the state. And the funding that goes with those people and the voting power that goes with those people stays in these communities where, um, you know, where people are returning. Uh, my husband was counted in red granite. Um, in 2020 and ended up staying there for four months. And so, you know, he's wow. now, there's now funding and everything that's staying in Red Granite for 10 years. And he didn't even, you know, he, he wasn't even there for a year. And that's happened all over the state. There is mm. a District 12 in Wakan, which is a local uh, aldermatic, you know, county supervisor, uh, county executive, mayor, um, district in Wapan, 75% of that district is incarcerated, which means that whoever gets elected to represent that district only literally has 25% of people in their district that can actually vote for them. And this is not an anomaly. This happens all across state where we're creating these districts that are full of incarcerated people. 
and we're counting them just like they have the power that you or I have, and they absolutely don't. And again, they're, um, you know, they're really muddying the waters when it comes to providing representation for communities of color and providing uh, representation in those communities that look like the people that live in those communities. Wow, seventy-five percent of the population yeah. are prisoners. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna ask you to chime in on that, Jerry. What's your thoughts? Uh, well, well, just... yeah, that mm -hmm. that uh, you know, Peggy's point about the city of Wapan can be uh, expanded. I think really to to all of Dodge County, which is you know has. Uh, Four major prisons uh, within within the county. Um, so, but directly to the point of uh, long periods of extended supervision, that is really critical because I think judges hand out extended supervision like it was candy. I mean, they have no no idea. I mean, I I know one young man who got 25 years of extended supervision. Mm. And the judges do that because they think it's a way of signaling uh, the seriousness of the crime. And judges may have some understanding of the way truth and sentencing works. So they want to uh, show that they're tough on crime, but not lock somebody up uh, for a lot of time. So they will do uh, what's called a bifurcated sentence, which will be like maybe five years in and 15 years on ES and they think well so they've given uh, a 20 year sentence and they look tough on crime but what it means is that that person is going to be under control and subject to crimeless revocation for 15 years and there is another uh, sort of very subtle part about long periods of extended supervision, and that is uh, eligibility for a pardon. Because to be right. eligible for a pardon, you have to have completed your sentence, which means... Uh, incarcerated time and on paper, you have to have completed that five years ago. So you mm -hmm. cannot even apply until you've been off paper for five years. And so these, what, what, what I think are really casual and uninformed uh, years of ES by sentencing judges uh, have huge consequences. Mm -hmm. 
And just let me say, Peggy and, and Jerome, you tell me when I've talked too much, but the one thing I've learned since I've started this ministry and been going into prisons and listening to people talk about their sentences and stuff is how little judges know about the way the Department of Corrections works. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, for, right. for years, for years, I was in courtrooms, either as a defense attorney or a prosecutor, listening to judges say things like, I'm sending you to prison so you can get the help you need. Mm -hmm. I'm sending you to prison, mm -hmm. so I'm going to, but I'll recommend that you be sent to a prison close to home. <laughs> and I, mm -hmm. I, I've become convinced that there is a laugh track at DOC when they get mm -hmm. those sentences. Mm. And, right. and, and as a lawyer, I had no idea how, what, how corrections really worked. And I know most judges have no idea. Now, some some really do understand what's going on and how and how right. little power they have. Virtually, they have no power over the Department of Corrections. Yes. Right. Thank you for stating right. that, Jerry. Really, I. Uh, they have no power over the uh, uh, right. Department of Corrections. And right. being right. on supervision. They, they don't know that. They don't mm -hmm. know that. Right. Wow. So what I'm hearing here is that we, that, that uh, uh, this, the DAs and, and judges need to be educated around <laughs> this system itself, that they're playing such a crucial role in. Uh, right. And and why there's no caps on extended supervision, uh, it, it boggles me. Okay. It does. Right. And some, I think you could even make the argument that having such extended periods of supervision actually is or could be construed as a um, as a as a marker for how well the Department of Corrections are doing. If you're putting people in your system and you honestly believe that you're rehabilitating them and that you're making responsible citizens of them, then why is it that you feel that you need to hold on to them for such an exorbitantly long time after you've released them from your system? And so in reality, what's really happening is that since truth and sentencing happened in Wisconsin, we're not providing people the things that they need to deal with the trauma and the underlying issues that they have that have uh you know created a situation where they're in the system and so we you know so they then release them continue to not ad address the issues that are created don't have money in their budget to address the situations that were created and now feel like they need to hold on to people to make sure that they're um, you know, that they're being acclimated into society um, when in reality you literally set that person up to fail. Mm -hmm. 
I totally right. agree. Well, well, and I think, uh, Peggy, you might know this research better than I, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I think there was some research that said that the first three years are sort yeah. of decisive in whether yeah. you're going to make it on the outside. So right. having somebody on ES for 20 years right. makes no sense. It doesn't. Yeah. And that's not and a rare case to hear 10, years. Right. And so many states, again, Wisconsin is three times the national average. And in many states, they've put caps on, um, and we, these, this is their terminology, not our terminology, but um, nonviolent um, cases, you, you have a max of three years of supervision. For cases that were violent and or sexual in nature, you've got five-year caps on your sentence in many states. And, um, and again, you don't see mass chaos ensuing and, you know, um, people, you know, running amok. And so it clearly works in those states. But, again, I think I could argue that possibly that those states are very competent in their Department of Corrections and what's going on within their Department of Corrections to prepare people to come out and to you know, be, again, to be productive citizens or what we would like to think of as productive citizens. Mm. And in the state of Wisconsin, again, you know, we're, we, we spend more money on corrections, um, you know, than we spend on just about anything else, yet we have, we have the poorest outcomes. You know, we're in a state where we count we we count successful recidivism as someone has died. Um, you know, regardless of how they've died, and I don't think that any of us would measure death as you know as a success, especially if you've overdosed because you haven't received treatment the entire time that you've been in the system, or because you were released homeless and you froze to death, or you know. Um, sure, you're not going back to prison, but is that a success? No. It's not. No. No. I, I no. think part of the problem, I mean, the, Peggy, you have really articulated the, you know, the specific flaws in the system. Mm-hmm. The overarching problem is this tough-on-crime mentality. Right that Wisconsin mm-hmm. is clinging to that other states, for example, that have capped uh, extended supervision, uh, have have right. abandoned 10 years ago. Right. And that's, mm-hmm. again, I, mean, I think judges hand out these long periods of extended supervision so that the right. sentence looks tough and they think well five years in 15 years out and the paper reports that as a 20-year sentence mm-hmm. and the judge can sleep at night saying well yeah but this man or woman they're only going to do five years so th- this is not that right bad. yeah and the real challenge right. is and- doing 15 years 
on right. uh, community right. corrections. Uh, right. You know, and right. another illustration, Jerry, to what you're saying, for the life of me, I cannot understand why we can't move 17-year-olds and uh, out of the adult criminal justice system. It's the only place right. that you're considered a, a, an adult uh, uh, automatically, regardless of what the crime is, you're tagged at 17, you're on what we call CCAP, which is uh, the internet, sure. uh, you, you know, uh, and you're losing your voting rights before you can even vote. But we're stuck in a place where we can't even move 17-year-olds out of the adult system and uh, uh, keeping them in the juvenile system at least until they're 18. I, you know, where are we going as a state? <laughs> yeah. What are we well, doing? There, I mean, there's a there's a history to that decision, and it goes back to the late 90s, and the idea that Hillary Clinton will have to live with forever, this idea of super predators that there were juveniles right. who were super predators and they had to be uh, restrained. So you have that going on. And then you have uh, money. You just follow the money because by moving 17-year-olds to the adult system, you transferred the responsibility from counties to the states. So the biggest, one of the biggest opponents right. of uh, returning 17-year-olds uh, to the juvenile system uh, are counties, are the Wisconsin Counties Association, because that would require the counties to assume the financial responsibility uh, for those kids. Thank you, Jerry. Right. And, yeah, so, uh, you know, I mean, you're right. I mean, this whole system is just, I mean, is so right. irrational and mm -hmm. driven by such, by by factors that have nothing to do with rehabilitation and nothing to do mm -hmm. with making Wisconsin safer. Mm. Thank right. you for that. And right. so, you know, we're, we're talking about extended supervision. I'm down to four minutes here. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Peggy, you know, we, we started uh, having forums around community corrections and mm -hmm. some of the issues with community corrections. Jerry, you brought a case to me that, that just saddens me because individuals aren't permitted to move on with their lives and, and be normal citizens, uh, 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 married but can't leave one county, go to another, etc. There's real issues with community corrections. And so I want to talk briefly. Now I have about three minutes. I do want to know what you guys, New Year's resolution would be for our criminal justice system in Wisconsin. And I'll start with you, Jerry. Uh, repeal truth in sentencing and reinstate uh, parole. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And Peggy? Well, uh, my 
New Year's resolution for the state would be in that this is a upcoming election year is that we really as a state focus on what our priorities are and if prison and putting people away in prison is what your priorities are then vote accordingly but if you'd like to see some reforms and again I don't think that the Department of Correction is doing a bad job I just think that they're being um, they're not being funded at a level that really um, is people is people centered you know they really um, need to focus more on people so that would be I guess that's a twofold goal there but you know let's let's make let's make everything in the state about people and being people centered okay in my last two minutes I, I do want to raise up the rising alarming rates of COVID uh, in our prison yes. system and Jerry I, you know, I, I want to say let's pray for our brothers and sisters uh, uh, who are behind the walls uh, in this time of uh, COVID again. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, we're, I think that one way of reducing the population is computations, uh, quick, quick uh, 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 explanation of what computation is compared to pardons. If we could do that in a oh, minute. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, commutation means you uh, let somebody out of prison before they've served their full sentence. So it is while you're con commutation can happen while you're in prison. A pardon, at least in Wisconsin, can only happen after you've completed your sentence. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I, I, I raised that question because that is something that we're really looking for our, our current governor to do uh, to reduce some of the, mm -hmm. the population along with other steps. But uh, I wanted to be clear because someone asked me that. What's the difference in computation and pardons? Yeah. Uh, our time is up. I, okay. I really want to thank you, both of you for joining me this morning. Uh, great conversation. Uh, this is Jerome Dillon, and I'm closing out on the Expo Hour on the Morning Buzz every fourth Wednesday, or every last Wednesday, some, some months we have five. Uh, we're here. Please join us in the future for these type of conversations. Thank you. Everybody thinks